0: This morning, we conclude our short series we've been doing entitled Small Letters with a Big Message, and the small letter we're going to be looking at this morning, our text comes from the letter from Jude to the church. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to all of God's people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject the authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him But for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they don't understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed off. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are hidden reefs at your love feasts, eating with you, without the slightest qualm. shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all ungodly acts as they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To show others mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing that's stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This letter from Jude uh, gives us powerful and strong language to speak to significant problem that was happening in a very small church. We don't know who they were. We don't have any details on the audience. Jude is Jesus' half-brother. And interesting how he starts this letter with tremendous humility. He doesn't play the brother card, yo, I'm closer to Jesus than anyone. We grew up together. He doesn't say that. He says, servant of Jesus and brother of James. Even though he's the the half-brother of Jesus. And Jude's initial desire, he says, really what I wanted to do was write to you about our common salvation. But there's been some church drama. And all of this church drama has robbed him of the opportunity to write about common salvation, and instead he's got to deal with the problems in the church, namely false teaching, a false teaching that's brought in sexual immorality. And I sat there for a moment, and I just really paused and used my imagination to think, what could he have written? Imagine getting a letter to the church from the half-brother of Jesus who grew up with Jesus. We probably missed some great behind-the-scenes stuff because of that church drama. Maybe stories of them playing hide-and-seek together and Jesus would clap his hands, and the wind would blow, and the bushes would part, and he'd say, I see you, dude. I see you. I don't know what we would have had, but it would have been amazing. He loves triads, and this letter, if you were to take the time to break through it, it's triad after triad. Their literary devices keep on repeating. He begins with one. This letter is to those who are called by the Spirit, loved by the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. He begins with this Trinitarian form, even in the greeting. And then it continues through. Three historical examples of rejecting God's authority. right, Israel, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. Three historical figures infamous for their rejection of God's authority. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Three ways to keep yourself in the love of God. Three ways to relate to your brother or your sister here in this church who's deceived into thinking that sin isn't sin. This short letter is thick. It's illustration inception. It's actually a 12 point uh, sermon, but I've grouped it them- uh, thematically into three. You're welcome. So that's how we're going to be handling it today. And I want you to note the audience even before we begin to dive into this because the audience is those who are called. Called by the Spirit, loved by God, kept by Jesus. That's us. We're the audience. This text is for the church, this text is not for the city. The teaching I'm going to give you this morning is not for our city. It's for you. And even more specifically than just saying Christians writ large, large, it's my responsibility as your pastor, as one given church, to care for your soul to speak specifically to this group. So even though there are literally libraries written on the subject of sexuality and these sorts of things as it relates to the biblical view, cultural views, I'm going to be honing this down to this group that I know and speak in a way that I think is going to serve you. Because I can't pastor the city, I can't pastor the internet, I can, I, I'm called to pastor you. And so that's who this text is for. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote a tremendous commentary on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in it he said, If the Christian requires the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live in a way that is congruent with our God, then why would we ever expect those who don't have the indwelling power of the Spirit... Of Christ to live in a way that glorifies Christ. It's a ludicrous expectation. It's an unfair expectation. And it only leads us into feelings of superiority because we then will look at the city with disdain when really we should be looking at them with love and mercy and kindness in our hearts. This text is for us, it's for the church. We're not given the scriptural practice for sexuality. It's assumed. He says that there's sexual immorality, but he's assuming. That the audience knows what the, what, what the practice is for those who have bat, been baptized into the name of Christ, who profess the name of Christ, who say, Jesus Christ is not only my Savior by his grace, but also my Lord and King. And I will therefore bend my knee to him and desire to walk into obedience of his ways, not because my obedience is earning me anything, but from sheer pleasure that I want to live to the glory of my King. And though I'll struggle all my days with my indwelling sin and my wayward appetites and desires and loves and affections that need reform and renewal, I will do it because He is my Savior and my King. And because we're not given the practice for that, the assumption is that we are going to look to see what the Scriptures say about that practice. And I'm going to summarize it briefly. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has put it in, a, in an interesting position by the religious leaders who want to trip him up, and they concoct this fantastic scenario of a woman whose husband dies, and in that culture, it was the the culture the cultural practice was one of the brothers would take the wife uh, and and would uh, care for her her whole life economically. If they had no children, would would uh, give her children. It was his responsibility to take care of the woman, because in the ancient cultural context, a widow, if you're a widow, you're on the pathway to sure poverty. And so the law was take care of the woman, don't leave her uh, in the streets. And so they say to Jesus, her husband dies, and then the brother uh, takes her. But then he dies, and then the next brother, and the next brother, up to seven. And they say, then in the resurrection, whose wife is she, Jesus? She's had seven husbands. And they sit back, and they cross their arms, and ha-ha-ha. Well, I mean, that's the subtext. The text doesn't actually say that. But this is the tone in which they're trying to trip up Jesus. And Jesus quotes from Genesis. Remember, Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is God, incarnate. So Jesus quotes his own creative process in Genesis. And Jesus says, have you not read where it is written that when God created them, he created them male and female? And for this reason, a husband shall leave his mother and his father and cleave cling only to his wife. And what God has brought together in that marriage, let no one put asunder. Jesus quotes that to them. In this, we're given our, as Christians, we are given our practice. We're given our posture and our practice. God has created us male and female, that our sexuality is to stay in this very specific context of a covenant marriage, whereby you've given all of yourself to this person. You've given all of yourself emotionally, financially. You have literally cleaved and clung to this other person. And once you have given the totality of who you are in every way that it means to be human, you then, in that context of deep Covenant commitment, covenant being a promise of future love, not that I love you today and this is a contract and if you don't keep up your end, I I don't have to keep up my end and we break the contract, no. Covenant whereby the very nature of God is infused into the marriage, whereby even if you fail miserably, I am covenanted to you. Despite your failures, I cleave only to you. I love you, I pursue you, I'm committed to you. In the context of that very specific covenant marriage, is where, in the mind of God, our our, our sexual practice as Christians is to live. Now, that is a chasm away from the way in which we understand sexuality in our culture and in our city today. In fact, even the the, the moment that was penned, it was in total contradiction to the surrounding cultures, even in the ancient world, and the way that sexuality was practiced even then. But that, nonetheless... That is what Jesus gives as our practice. The way in which we are to understand ourselves as Christians. That we are not defined by our sexuality. We're not defined by who we are. We are, in an ultimate sense, defined by whose we are. And this means that our sexuality is a part of who we are. It's an important part of who we are, but it is certainly not the totality of who we are. It is simply a part of who we are. Because if it was the definition of who we are, Then we are immediately relegating single people, regardless of their sexual orientation, heterosexual, homosexual, every single person, we are relegating them to a subpar human existence, human experience. We are then relegating single people to being, singleness is now somehow a sickness that needs to be cured, it's a problem that needs to be solved, no person could possibly live a single life because after all you're going to be unfulfilled as a single person and you've got to be an active sexual being in order to be fulfilled and we've relegated untold amounts of people into subpar human experience and that is just not the wisdom and the, uh, and the, the wise guidance of God. Everything I'm saying is our practice. What then is our posture for everyone in, outside this room in our city who would disagree with every word that Jesus said, every word that I just Attempted to faithfully uh, contextualize and recount based upon the words that Jesus said. They would disagree with everything that was said. Perhaps you're here this morning, you disagree with everything that was said. What is our posture towards our family, our friends, our co workers, our neighbors who disagree with the Christian practice of sexuality? Our posture is love, kindness, dignity, and civility. We see this in Jesus as Jesus was repeatedly sitting around and having dinner and making friendships with people who did not cohere their lives to any of the wise guidance of the Father, any of the fulfillment of the wisdom of God's word of Jesus, had no interest in the indwelling reformative power of the Spirit. We see in Jesus, in his posture, our posture. There is a practice for the church and there is a posture towards the city. And that is not taught here by Jude, but by simply saying teachers have come into the church and now we've got a sexual, uh, a sexual practice problem in the church infers that somehow the church just adopted the conversation of the culture. Then and the same is true now. So the real question is not, Do the views of this church community cohere with every other community? That's not the question. If we're going to be people who live in in a, in a sense of unity and civility, in plurality, if we are going to be a unified Waterloo region where we can thrive in diversity, that cannot happen by stamping out the beliefs of different communities. It cannot happen by leveling out the beliefs of of all communities, it can't happen by legislating and checkboxing the beliefs of communities because, quite frankly, the way that different diverse communities, faith communities and non-faith communities, exist is because they have a particular set of values. Therefore, what makes a community bigoted and hateful and resentful (laughs) and angry and violent is not the fact that they have differing values. What makes them those things is if their values lead them to actions postures, practices that are hateful towards everybody who does not agree with their position. But right here, right now, here in this church, Redeemer, we're called to live according to the wise guidance of God's word for our own lives. If you happen to have children, to train them in this way and yet have a posture of civility, kindness, love, and dignity for everybody outside these doors who does not agree with these practices. Let's take a look now at this text as I break it out into three things that were going on for Jude's audience and see the implications for us today as the modern audience. Firstly, there's a problem of destructive teaching and immoral practices in the church. Secondly, there is a call for a courageous and loving response by the church. And then lastly, there's an encouraging promise for the church. First, the problem of destructive teaching and immoral practices. The false teachers twisted grace into a license for sin. They dethroned Christ. They confused the church by insisting that the sexual ideologies of the culture were permissible. That was what was going on. In verse 12, it's very clear. This isn't just confused church members. He calls them shepherds. These are teachers. And they're claiming to have the same faith in Jesus... But they have no regard for the lordship of Jesus. He's not the king. For them, grace is some strange excuse to fulfill what they already want. They want to fulfill their own sexual desires. And uh, they are not interested in any transformative power to reform their desires. He's very explicit in saying they don't have the spirit, which means they don't have the spirit to even be led by the wise guidance of God's desires. This is what we're dealing with here. They're justifying all of their behavior by so-called revelations. In verse eight, it says they've got they've got their dreams, so they're like, hey, there's my interpretation of scripture. I've got a new interpretation, and lo and behold, it's what I already wanted. Therefore, God is okay with it because I desire it. And how could He possibly be a loving God if He did not agree with me on all points? If He didn't give me the desires of my heart, that God is a that is a is a is a construct of our own desires. So that's why James, or Jude refers to them as these dreams, these revelations that they are suggesting that they're okay. Really, at the end of the day, it's just a refusal of authority. And this idea of the refusing of God's authority, the wise guidance of God's authority, continues to come up over and over. It says that they're destined for condemnation, or they were written about long ago. And this is because God is an ogre who has a dark pleasure in hiding himself and then condemning people to judgment. no. In the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has clearly revealed himself, and these teachers have totally disregarded him. This letter is written around 60 AD-ish. It's only been 30 years since the resurrection of Christ. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, the Christian church was not birthed on a missing body theory. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ over a period of 40 days, and he turned the ancient world upside down. In the book of Acts, the Roman political leaders use that phrase, these Christians have turned the world upside down. It's because it exploded in Rome when really it should have just been laughed out of Rome. But the resurrection of Jesus is right and real and true, and it changed the game. And these teachers have disregarded all of that. See, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then none of this has any relevance because, of course, we are our own authority and we just decide how we want to live our lives and that's the end of it. But you, Christian, you, you and I, our practice is then given to us by the wise guidance of our risen Savior, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And then he gives three examples of those who rejected God with this insatiable desire to ascend and be God. Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel, you know, they have the miraculous deliverance in Egypt through the Red Sea. They hear the voice of God at Sinai. God provides for them miraculously for 40 years. For 40 years they're fed in the desert. And then at the end of all of that, they turn from God to other gods who conveniently permitted them to do what they already wanted. And then he moves on from that example to the angels, who in Isaiah 14, who are given this prophetic image, this poetry, of how the angels, of how the devil, the enemy, the Satan in the Hebrew, the enemy of God, rejected God and wanted to ascend to the throne of God. Again, this divine trees and the ascension. Then we're given the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? infamously known for uh, just being a, a, an oppressive city. When, you, we, when we read the text, we don't get lots of details about Sodom and Gomorrah. We just know that it was so wicked that the people who lived there were crying out because they were so oppressed. It wasn't like the people of God crying out from oppression. It was the people who were under the, the oppression of their own making who were crying out. The city was a terrible place to live. You were not a human being. You were consumed. You were consumed economically. You were consumed civilly. You were consumed sexually. You were a you were a you were a commodity to be used and assumed. This is what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. They had no regard for God whatsoever. There's this outcry. There's this really striking and visceral, graphic story of where God sends these angels, and, and there's a, a discussion He has with Abraham where. Abraham says, will you spare the city if I can find 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 20 righteous, 10 righteous? And God keeps saying, yes, I will, yes, yes, yes. And this is not a picture of like a really generous Abraham and this ogre that he's like, keep back, keep the ogre back. What this is, is this is God revealing himself to Abraham to saying, press me more and see how merciful I am. And he keeps on going down, if I can just find 10, and God would have probably gone down to one. Because this is the, the merciful God. The city just deserves destruction, but God is offering mercy, so the angels of God go into the city. And then there is a group of violent men that want to gang-rape these men that God sent. And that gets a lot of airtime, because people want to pause the sermon and then spend the next 40 minutes talking about homosexuality. I'm not going to do that, because clearly the, the scriptural practices I already defined, Jesus defines uh, this for us as Christians in terms of how we ought to relate to this. Because in the next breath, after they want to gang rape these men, the, the owner of the house says, No, 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 please don't do that. I've got these two daughters and they're virgins. I'll, th- I'll toss them out there. You can have your way with them. The whole thing is a disaster. So, what does this mean for us here, at church, here today? It means that if you are a child of God, if you've been baptized into Christ, if you have named his name, regardless of, regardless of whether your uh, sexual desires are heterosexual or homosexual, You are not defined by those sexual impulses. You are a child of the king. And now you are called into a dignified life where it it, it perhaps could end in marriage, but marriage is not God's highest and best for you. You can live a, a life of full flourishing as a single person, fulfilled as Christ was, fulfilled as the apostle Paul was. Paul wrote provocatively in a culture that elevated community and elevated having children, Paul said, it's better that you're like me. It's better that you remain single. So some people re- will, will get married. Others will not get married. But th- neither of those things define you. You know, there's some, some interesting work by a, a woman named Louise Perry. She's not a Christian, but she's doing some interesting and unpopular work on how the cultural narrative of fulfilling yourself sexually has a negative impact on not just women like her, but people like her who are single, who are not having sex, who have not found Uh, romantic partners and the culture is bombarding them every 18 seconds of of the fact that there is they are somehow not fulfilled because they're not engaging in a exciting and vibrant sexual life and she's like that's not our experience and what is this sort of thing doing to us this narrative whereby she's sort of unearthing this thing say what is the impact of telling a person that you are less somehow less than if you're just living a single life this implausible thing called being a single person so, no, no, no. What we're given here is they've come in, they've, they've taken the cultural narrative, they brought in the church, it's a disaster. And then we're given this wild text from the Book of Enoch, which is not canon or scripture, but it was a historical document that the audience was very aware of. And it was this historical text that everybody knew. And so he quotes it in the same way that you would use a cultural reference to get everybody's attention. So it's not new, it's always been done Paul did it as well in Acts chapter 17, where he says of God, he's preaching in Athens, he says, in in God, in him we live and move and have our being. But that's a direct quote from a pagan poet, who's, that poet poem is about Zeus. And some of you went to churches that sang songs that sounded like this. In him we live and move, come on Pentecostals, and have our being, the church is singing it, it's about Zeus. But Paul used it to say, you've got the right idea that in a God we have our our life and our movement and our being, but it's not Zeus, it's actually Christ and him crucified. So this is what Jude does when he grabs this text from Enoch, and his whole purpose of saying it is, is, uh, look, even Michael the archangel wouldn't ascend to the throne of God and condemn the devil, but these teachers, they just ascend every five seconds. Every time they have an idea that pops into their head that's consistent with the cultural narrative, they say, look, this is also okay for the church. And they just ascend without thinking twice about it. That's the purpose for sort of bringing that text in. And it keeps on moving to Cain and Balaam and Korah. Cain, this image of sin given to us, this crouching predator that wants to devour you. It's the picture we're given of the impulse where we just sort of give into it. Doesn't matter, heterosexual, homosexual, we'll just sort of again we're not trying to pick a lane and pick on a particular group all sex that's outside of this real particular thing called the covenant of marriage and the purpose for that of course is not because the, the covenant of marriage is supposed to be elevated as, as best, it's an image of unity in diversity that the male and the female being diverse and different in every way, physically, bodily coming together is, is it's like a metaphor that God gives of his love for his people and so that's why it's Everybody doesn't need to get married to live a fulfilling life. Those who do enter into a covenant of continually dying to yourself for the rest of your life. Marriage is a commitment to continually put somebody else before you. It's an ongoing commitment to not just say, my happiness and my best life is what I'm after, and you're a barrier to that, so this thing's over. Marriage is a commitment of two sinners who come together, make a covenant commitment, and then they spend the rest of their lives... Loving each other and, and marriage is good and wonderful, and, but also it is, ongoing, uh, it is an ongoing challenge of dying to the self. He moves on from these images of Cain and of Balaam who was moved by, moved by uh, pride and prestige, just wanting what he wanted. And God tries to warn Balaam when you read about that in Numbers 22. God goes to great lengths to warn his people all the time. He even does a miracle and has the donkey speak to Balaam. And you'd think that would catch your attention. That would catch my attention. But Balaam wants what he wants and he keeps on going. I mean, my goodness, God's mercy, it just just knows no bounds. If God will speak to Balaam's ass, surely he'll speak to mine. See, that's why the kids couldn't be in here, because I was reserving that joke for seven days. Surely he'll speak to yours. His mercy, his patience, his unrelenting movement towards us in forgiveness and grace. I mean, if this letter was an EDM song, the next section would be like this crescendo leading to the drop. There's just this rapid fire of poetic images showing how useless all of, this, all of this false teaching is. Hidden reefs at the love feast, like running your ship up into the reefs that you didn't know were there. Clouds without water, they nourish nothing. Trees without fruit, they nourish nothing. Raging waves stir up everything. The wandering stars guide nothing. Comets, they catch your eye and then they fizzle off into darkness forever, just like false teaching. None of this is describing struggling Christians. This is all describing false teachers. Then we come to the call for the courageous and loving response by the church. He says, You've got to contend for the faith. The faith in this context doesn't mean the belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The faith in the context of this letter means, what does the Bible actually say? I mean, what are the teachings of Scripture? What, what is sound doctrine and what are just, you know, what's bad teaching? How do we know this? We've got to contend. It's a, it's a phrase that comes from, uh, from, it's a military term, to wrestle, to grapple, to bring somebody to the ground. It says, contend for the faith. But... The purpose for you would contend with a struggling brother, a struggling sister, somebody in the church who's here who loves Jesus, they've been baptized into his name. Maybe they're heterosexuals and they're single and they're struggling with wanting to just engage sexually outside of a covenant. Nobody's committed to them, but they want to, but they, they want to engage. Maybe they're homosexual and they love Jesus and they're baptized into Christ and they love Christ and they know what the Bible says about this, and yet it's like, what are, what are the implications for me? What are the implications for me as a person who I've just identified that, yeah, my desires are this way, and the Word of God is saying no, and how can that be? And everywhere I turn and everywhere I look is saying just fulfill your desires, and is this unjust, and is God uncaring, and is there a strength for me, a grace for me? The contending, the wrestling language doesn't mean we tackle them on the ground and we put them into a submission hold and we just grip them until they're crying and we want, to, we want them to tap out. It's the contending is like, I love you so much. I care for you so much. I want you to feel loved and cherished as a brother, as a sister, as a part of this community here at Redeemer, as one who has a, a family, as, as one who is uh, deeply cared for, who has meaningful relationships, just constantly contending for them to love and to care. A married person in here who's considering the cultural narrative that, hey, man, 50% of the marriages don't work, so maybe we'll just end this one and start another one. We contend with each other for this. Say, no, all of this matters because Jesus Christ is our Lord and we're indwelt by His Spirit and that means things. Who can I turn to? A brother, a sister, someone to give me wisdom to be faithful to walk this out. He gives us the posture of building ourselves up in faith. That means to have the knowledge of the Scriptures, to know what it means, to not just read a tweet or see a meme and go, yeah, that sounds good but to really understand it, to take it upon ourselves, to read and to study, to meditate on the Word of God, allow it to reform us, to teach our children to do the same. Susan and I have spent two and a half decades trying to teach our children their practice and their posture. And all of them, uh, whether through high school, uh, some even in elementary school, post-secondary education, have had friends who don't share any of the views on sexuality that I'm teaching this morning, wouldn't agree with anything that was being said, don't agree with any of their posture, but by by God's grace, our kids have been able to enjoy wonderful friendships with with folks that have just come from completely different walks of life. And so there's this call for us to contend for our children, to teach them the ways of God, so that we recognize false teaching when we hear it. Sometimes, I'm a a mega gearhead, I'm a mega car freak, and sometimes I look around the city and I'll see uh, BMWs that have an M badge on the back, and I'm like, that's not an M car. And because I'm a nerd I know where it should be and I know the spacing and I know how uh, how that ought to look and uh, they put it in the wrong place and that's just not an M car and to the average person who doesn't care about cars are like this looks absolutely fine this looks absolutely normal and I'm like no I'm sorry that's that's false teaching that's heresy that's not where that belongs this is not uh, motorsport division of BMW now The way that we become nerds of the gospel, nerds of the the wise guidance of God's word, is to ingest it and meditate upon it so regularly that when we see or we hear something that is enticing but not right, we say, no, this, this is enjoyable to my ears, but there's something here that's not right. That's why we take the time to catechize our kids and catechize our university students so that we can be faithful to our scriptural practice and have a generous posture to everybody who disagrees with us. Praying in the Holy Spirit. That's family language. It means we're praying because we have the Spirit. It means we're calling out on God, united to Christ, desiring transformation, anticipating the return of the King. We're to relate to those who are on the outside with mercy. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. This is our posture. What do we do with everybody who hears the teachings of Christ and says, I doubt that. That that sounds terrible and narrow and hateful and bigoted. Have mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. He uses the strong language of snatch, snatch your brother or sister from the fire. He's not just talking about hell, the poetic image of hell, this disintegration, this, this trajectory of, of being apart from God for all eternity, but the disintegrative effect of curving in on ourselves, of moving away from the wise guidance of God's word as it relates to our sexuality. With the same love that you would snatch a child's hand from a hot stove to say, hold on, I love you, I care about you, please. Please don't go this direction. May we have that posture with one another in this room as we endeavor to walk us out with faithfulness. And as I close, the encouraging promise for the church. You know, the the situation is serious, but in the end, it's not hopeless because Jude says Christ will keep his church. The introduction of the letter and the closing of the letter have grace-drenched bookends. He says that Christ will keep us. He will keep us. Those who leave the faith, what do we do? What do we do with those who, who walk from the church? What do we do with those who, even because of this, this subject of sexuality, of walk from the church, what do we do? We, we love them. We pursue them. We continue to have a relationship with them. We don't judge them. We're not the judges. We're the ministers. Don't confuse your job description. We're called to minister. We're not called to judge. We're called to judge the teaching inside the church, but we're not called to judge our brothers and our sisters in the condition of their salvation. We don't look at our watch and say, it's been a couple of weeks and since your behavior has not been in coherence with what I think, and I'm now judging that you're not a true believer. That's not your job. We're called to be ministers. And this is significant because then we can courageously and lovingly contend for the faith. We can courageously and lovingly move towards our family members, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. Who once worshipped Christ and today they don't. We can move towards them, hoping for an an eventual return. We don't bang the gavel on their exit. So where is the good news in all of this? It's in the doxology. It's in the end of the letter. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forever. Unlike the teachers who are hidden rocks, Christ is the rock of refuge, the rock of salvation. Unlike the false teachers who are self-centered shepherds, Christ is the great shepherd. Unlike the teachers who are fruitless trees, Christ is the vine, the sustainer of your souls. Unlike unlike the fruitless teachers, the wild waves, Christ is the one who calms and commands the waves, even of our own souls. Unlike the false teachers who are wandering stars incapable of guiding, Christ, the bright and morning star, whose spirit is guiding. May we live to the glory of the one who saved us in his grace. Amen. Let's pray.